things will never get better. Perhaps that's how you've been feeling as we've slogged through 42 and a half chapters of Job in our current sermon series. Week after week after week of constant weariness and sorrow. Things ever going to get better? Perhaps that's the feeling you have in your own life as you look around and you see nothing but trials and tragedies. Dark days and gloomy nights. Worsening relationships at home and at work. Developing and deepening afflictions and ailments in your body. Increasing crime and destruction in your neighborhood. Things are never going to get better. Everything is devastated. That's how many people felt 78 years ago today in the town of Hiroshima as an atomic bomb was dropped on that city by the United States, instantly killing 80,000 people and another, another 60,000 by the end of the year, with tens of thousands of people diseased from radiation in the years to come through poisoning. Things will never get better, many must have thought. We'll never recover. But is it true? It's a harrowing thought. It's a seemingly realistic thought. When you look around and all you see is destruction, the question is, is it true that things will never get better? That's the question we'll consider this morning as we finish out our study through the book of Job. And so if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Job chapter 42. This is our 10th and final sermon through the book. Been here looking at the life of the title character Job and God's work in it. And here we find this morning ourselves at the conclusion of the book. What will we see? How will the question of if things will ever get better be answered? Job chapter 42, if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 446. And this morning we'll look at verses 7 through 17. Job chapter 42, 7 through 17. Look at the text with me as I read. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. 
And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Here's what I think is the main idea of our passage this morning. And so the main idea of the sermon. As believers, we will experience much suffering and many sorrows, but we can trust that in the end, God will make all things right. As believers, we will experience much suffering and many sorrows, but we can trust that in the end, God will make all things right. As we walk through this text of scripture, we'll hang our thoughts on kind of two primary scenes we see in the text. And so two points. Number one, we see vindication, finally. We see that in verses seven through nine. And number two, we see restoration, fully. We see that in verses 10 through 17. Two scenes, number one, vindication, finally. And number two, restoration, fully. Number one, vindication, finally. It's what Job has been pleading for, longing for, for so long. To be vindicated, to be justified in God's sight. To be declared righteous. I mean, his friends had so maligned him, claiming that there was some secret hidden sin that caused all of Job's suffering. And then they kept chastising him all the way through the book for the way that he was handling his suffering like an unrighteous man. Job wanted it to be known that he didn't do anything wrong, that he really was righteous in God's sight. And here we see that Job's desires are matched by God's desires. God desires to vindicate Job. And so notice verse 7 says that after the Lord had spoken to Job, he speaks to Eliphaz, Job's friend and the kind of representative of the other two. And this book could have ended with chapter 38 through verse 6 of chapter 42 with God responding finally to Job. With God, we were a couple of weeks ago revealing more and more of his sovereign goodness and his sovereign glory and exacting from Job a deeper knowledge and deeper and more reverent expression of praise and worship. The book could have ended at chapter 42, verse 6, after God's and Job's conversation and left us with the grand picture of God's sovereign glory. 
but there's no more that, that needs to be said. There's more that needs to be shown, not just God's great glory, but also God's great grace. Indeed, God's glory is often maximally seen through his grace. Uh, places like Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul praises God for his glorious grace. And so God graciously gives Job here what he longed for, a clear name. And in doing so, he rebukes Job's friends. God speaks to Eliphaz in verse 7. He's singled out probably because he's the eldest of the group. Probably represents the, the other two. And, and what's the idea? The first idea that God wants Job's friends to know? That he is angry. But of course he is. I mean, you see these three friends indeed expected for an angry God to show up in fury. They expected God to kind of blast out of heaven with all the kind of fury of his might and fire off spitballs of judgment and condemnation against old sinful Job for all that old sinful Job had said, for all old sinful Job had done. But what we see is that God responded to Job in love and compassion. He questioned him, but, but so that he might know more of the depths of the riches of the goodness of the knowledge of God. So that Job might trust him more fully, might, might love him more deeply. While God condemns Job's friends. He's angry at them. What is it that makes God angry? But it's sin. But what types of sin? Or perhaps you've got a neat little list of things that you know God is angry about, which just happen to be things you don't struggle with or that you don't commit. God is angry at homosexuality. God is angry at fornication. God is angry at robbery and murder. God is really angry at child molestation and abuse. All those things are sins and do indeed incur God's anger and his wrath. But God is also angry at how people use their words. What comes out of their mouths. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 verses 36 through 37, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. I wonder how that might affect the words you speak this week. And notice it's not just words in general that bring condemnation. But in this passage, Words spoken about God that earn God's wrath. Words spoken about God that are not right. God says, my anger burns against you and your two friends for or because you have not spoken of me what was right. As my servant Job has. This is pretty shocking. Because it's not like Job's three friends have blasphemed God or cursed God. They've not used their words to deny God like some hardened atheist. They've not used their words to devalue God by placing other gods on par with God like some devout Hindu. 
they've not used their words to disrespect God by questioning him like, like Job. They've used their words to seemingly exalt God, to speak of who he is and how he runs things and how he'll respond to impious people like Job. Only their supposedly righteous words about God are all wrong. They've presumed upon God's ways and God's character. They believe in some kind of tit-for-tat system that's predictable instead of trusting in an all-wise and unpredictable God. They've tried to put God in a box that demonstrates that they don't truly know the real God at all. Friends, God cares about how we speak to him. God cares about how we speak about him. Doctrinal precision is important. So it's not just that you talk a lot about God. Every time you open your mouth, you're talking about the Lord. Do you talk about God in the right way? Do you talk about God as the Bible talks about God? Dig down a little bit and, and consider that. Don't assume that you do. Do you talk about God being sovereign over everyone and everything, including salvation? He chooses who he's going to save and he saves them? That's biblical. The Bible presents an electing God. But do you talk with a kind of sharpness and coldness that makes you present a God who then seemingly doesn't care about the world at all? who kind of has his mind made up and so doesn't mean to extend himself out to everyone and call everyone to know him. That's not the biblical view of God. Do you talk one-dimensionally about God? A God of love only who just goes for everything. Or a God of judgment only, who only delights in condemning and calling out folks which you use as your basis for condemning and calling out folks. I'm just being godly. But, but do you not talk about God's tender loving care, his compassion and his mercy, his gentleness and his lowliness, his humility, his patience, his forbearance? In other words, friends, what I'm asking us to consider is whether God is angry at us for not rightly speaking of him. By not rightly thinking of him. As his servant Job has. I mean, that's doubly shocking that, that the friends with all their pious speech have been condemned. And that Job with all his, his seemingly impious speech is here commended. I mean, even through all the raw language and the seemingly reckless lament about wishing he'd never been born, all his bold questioning, God does not charge Job with sinful speech. Friends, I think it shows that God gives great space for us to talk honestly to him as if he's real and as if he really cares for us. Job, unlike his friends, had a real personal relationship with God. He didn't feel like he needed to walk on eggshells or talk in circles around God. He spoke to him and he shared what was on his heart. And even as he spoke rashly 
and even ignorantly at times, God filtered his words through the heart that they flowed out of, and God exclaims unashamedly and proudly, my servant Job has spoken rightly of me. Saints, see what God esteems. He's not impressed by cold, formulaic assertions about him and his attributes. God is sovereign. God is just. God is powerful. Neither is God moved by how eloquently one might state their assertions about him. I mean, Job's three friends almost tried to outdo one another to see whose speech could be better in exalting God and putting Job down. No, God esteems the lowly. A pure and contrite heart he will not despise. God loves when his people talk not only about him, but to him, which allows them then to talk about him in the right way because we really know him. Job is God's treasured servant still. Notice how God says, my servant Job. It's a title of honor, of relationship. It's how God described Abraham. It's how God described Moses. It's how God described Job to Satan at the beginning of the book. Have you considered my servant Job? And even after all the hardships and all the words shared between him and his friends, Job is still God's servant who has spoken rightly of him. Job is justified and Job's friends are condemned. Now you might be wondering, what about Elihu? You remember that kind of fourth friend that kind of popped on the scene out of nowhere and jumped into the conversation? Like, who, who are you? Right? Why isn't he mentioned here? Right? Notice that the Eliphaz is condemned with his two friends. Well, what about this fourth friend, Elihu? Short answer, we don't know. Text doesn't explicitly tell us. Some have surmised that, that it's because Elihu isn't mentioned because Elihu indeed served as God's spokesman to give Job and his friends greater insight. And so that's why he isn't rebuked here with the other three friends. But as we saw in those Elihu chapters, he was slightly better than Job's friends, but just slightly. He still repeated some of their same errors, charging Job with secret sin, demanding that Job repent of some sin that he might get back in God's good graces. Well, it might be that he's not mentioned here because he simply didn't add much to the situation. He didn't move the needle or bring any resolutions at all. I mean, true, Elihu isn't rebuked here by God. God doesn't count him among the friends who spoke wrongly of him, but neither is Elihu praised. God doesn't say that my servants, Job and Elihu, have spoken rightly of me, only Job. Elihu simply gets no mention. But the three friends who do, who the Lord does rebuke, they must do something. Notice God is angry at Job's friends for the way they've spoken. He's a just God. But then he tells them what to do in verse 8 to appease his anger. He's a merciful God. Friends, God is both angry at sinners and merciful to sinners. He rightfully charges us with sin, but then provides a remedy for that sin. God does not want to leave sinners in their sin. God does not mean to leave you in your sin. So don't leave this room still in your sin this morning. You see, for God, it's important not just for Job to be vindicated, declared right in his friend's eyes. 
it's also important for his friends to be vindicated, to be declared right in God's eyes. So God provides a way for sin to be atoned for and for his anger to be appeased through sacrifice. God commands the friends to offer a burnt offering for themselves of seven bulls and seven rams in verse 8. It's a costly sacrifice. Seven whole bulls and seven whole rams. I mean, you can read through the, the law, the Decalogue. You can see that the Israelites, they, they didn't have to give that many offerings for a sin offering. Right? And here they're like, you got to give seven whole bulls and seven whole lambs or rams, showing just how significant and weighty their sin was. But you might say they just said some wrong things. All that for this? Friends, I think it shows that every sin carries the full weight of eternity in hell with it. In other words, there's no such thing as a small sin that requires some small sacrifice. Every sin is costly and requires a costly sacrifice. These friends are to bring their sacrifices to God through Job. Notice God commands, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job in human eyes, if you were looking at Job, Job is of incredibly low repute. His life is in shambles. He's poor now and has nothing. His body is in bad condition. He's been despised and rejected by those closest to him. Yet he's the one that God chooses to serve as a priestly intercessor for those who wronged him. He's the one who will represent his friends to God, who will offer the sacrifice on his friend's behalf and pray on their behalf for God to forgive them, for God not to deal with them according as their sins and their folly deserve. And God says, I will accept the priestly work and the intercessory prayer of my servant Job for his friends. Saints, do you see how Job prefigures Jesus? Job is constantly referred to by God on purpose here four times in this passage as my servant Job. Esteemed by God as the one who was the intercessor for those who wronged and despised him. As the one who makes a sacrifice on their behalf and prays on their behalf so that they can be forgiven. But Jesus Christ was the promised servant of God, the suffering servant who gave his own life as a sacrifice. God prophesies about him in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servants, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus interceded for us. He not only laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for us and for our sins, on the cross, he also interceded and prayed for us. 
calling out to his heavenly father as he stretched out in agony, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the father accepted Jesus' sacrifice and his prayer just as the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The proof that God accepted, accepted Jesus' sacrifice and his prayer? Well, Jesus rose up from the grave three days later, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient payment that satisfied all of God's wrath and restored all those who trusted in his sacrifice to a right relationship with God their Father. Do you want further proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice and his prayer? Well, look at your own life. Look at our church. We are here today as Christians forgiven in God's sight because of Christ's work and Christ's prayer. Because 2,000 years ago, the Son of God left heaven and gave his life to save sinners like us and prayed, Father, forgive them. And the Lord listened to the prayer of his servant and he saved us and has forgiven us. We've turned from our sins and we've trusted in Christ and his sacrifice for us because Jesus prayed for us that we might know the Lord for ourselves. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that's what you must do today to be forgiven. You must turn from your sins and trust in God, in God's provision for you, for your sins. You do not want to stand face to face with an angry God. You see, the same God who showed up to Job's three friends here in this passage will show up to you one day. Everything is not going to be sweet all the time. Guaranteed, this same God who met Job's three friends and they thought they were in the right, he's going to meet you. It could be this afternoon through a car crash. It could be next week through a gunshot. It could be 80 years from now through some disease in your old age. Someday you will meet God. The question is, how will you meet him? Will you meet him as your friend, as your enemy? The Lord has no favorites. He shows no favoritism. There is no partiality. He will meet every single one of us. And the question is, will the Lord be angry with us? You do not want to stand before an angry God on your own. You don't have what it takes to stand up to him. You need a sacrifice. You need an intercessor. You need a mediator. And praise God that you don't need to fabricate your own savior or mediator. You don't need to try to be your own savior or mediator. The Lord has given all that we require. The Lord has sent his only son, Jesus Christ. The only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life for us. Turn from your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe that you might be reconciled. You must do what God commands you to do in order to be forgiven and reconciled. That's what these three friends did. Notice that these three friends in verse 9 followed God's command. Right? The Lord told them what to do. He said, who I am, notice that, who I am, angry. What you must do offer sacrifice and have an intercessor. And then the response. You see, God takes all the initiative, right? But we must respond to God's initiative, right? So, so you don't need to sit in your chair today. You need to respond. Notice in verse 9, we read Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar 
went and did what the Lord had told them. And after they did what the Lord had told them, the Lord accepted Job's prayer for them to be forgiven. And friends, it is guaranteed that if you do what the Lord tells you to do, repent and believe in his son, Jesus Christ, you too will be forgiven this very day. Would you repent? Would you believe? We don't do an altar call here. Right now in your seats, you can turn and trust in Jesus. Don't let nobody keep you from the Lord. Don't let nobody keep you in the wrath of God. The Lord does not mean for you to stay there. It's why he graciously shows up to Job's three friends. It's why he's graciously shown up to you today. But before we wrap up this, this first set of verses, I also want us to focus on, on just how striking it is that Job too does what God commands him to do. And kind of one final test, whether or not he will forgive his friends and pray for them. I mean, consider how miserable they have been to Job all throughout. Job expressed, miserable comforters are you all. Consider how harsh and horrible they've been to Job throughout this book. Job perhaps might feel justified in not granting them forgiveness wanting them to go to hell and not serving as their mediator. And even more, and even more striking, notice that Job is still suffering. His misery hasn't been lifted. Yes, verse 10 is coming when God will restore all Job once had, but Job is living right now in verse 9. In all the wreckage in his body, in all the wreckage of his relationships, in all the sorrows and sadness of all the loss he's experienced. And yet, while in all his pain, he's instructed not to think only of himself, but to think of others, to pray for them. Job, again, might be justified, we might think, in complaining to God. <laughs> what about me and my suffering? What do you mean pray for them? How about you take care of me first and then you can worry about these jokers? I'm your faithful servant. I'm the one who's been with you ride or die all this time. And you're talking about go pray for them? Here I am suffering still. We don't hear any feedback. As old folks should say, no talk back. Job simply trusts God. He loves God. And he loves his friends. You know, that's part of how our love for God is displayed. By our love for those that God has placed around us. Even when they've wronged us. I mean, Jesus commanded, love your enemies and pray for them. And so Job obeys God. He prays for his friends, and the Lord accepts Job's prayer. How must that have reconciled the relationship between Job and his friends? I mean, what model of forgiveness has Job displayed towards them, demonstrating God's greater forgiveness? 
Saints, there's great evangelistic and apologetic effect in our forbearance and our forgiveness. Our putting up with, bearing other folks' slights and slanders and sins and forgiving them can speak volumes of our Savior who so deeply and richly loved us, who's been so graciously patient with us, who's been so forbearing, who stood back as we've committed hundreds of thousands of sins against them and has not judged us according to our folly and has been so patient and yet at some point in your life, he forgave you, even as great as the mountain of your sins were. Those forgiven much must forgive much. I praise that God for, for the model of that you guys have, have shown, demonstrated in the life of our church. Some of you have, have shared Time and again of, of you praying for parents that did your mom or your dad dirty. That did so much dirt and harm to you as their child. You're still bearing some of the scars from that. You're still wrestling with all the hurt from that. And yet, instead of harboring this nonstop and unbreakable resentment, you pray for them. Some of you are praying for spouses who've used you and abused you and have belittled you for months and for years. They've spoken and behaved sinfully with seeming no regrets. But because of God's work in you and God's work for you and God's work through you, you constantly fight the flesh's desire to retaliate, to be on get back. You forgive them and you pray that the Lord would forgive them. You pray that they one day would repent and be forgiven. That's incredibly hard. There's no denying that, right? That ain't something, oh, yes, it's easy. That's what we do. That's incredibly hard. But you know, God calls Christians to do hard things. And God's people obey God because we love the Lord more then we hate our enemies. And because we love the Lord, we even love our enemies. And God gives his spirit to help us. There's a new you inside of you that's helping you not to respond to that person who's hurt you like the old you wants to. They might have hurt the old you and might still be hurting the new you, but the new you don't have to respond like the old new because of the Christ that's in you. Right? Trust in the Lord's work to sustain you and obey the Lord. This is the kind of final test for Job that he passes. And in doing so, it's an unspoken final rebuke of Satan. Remember earlier in the book, Satan claimed, Job only serves you because everything is going right. Well, here's Job, everything is still wrong. And he's still clinging to God, treasuring God, obeying God. And God is pleased with his servant. And here you are. Nothing, it seems, is going right. Everything is wrong and is staying wrong for months and for years. These jokers will not change. These circumstances aren't changing at all. And yet you're still clinging to God. Treasuring God. Trusting God. Obeying God. And saints know 
that the Lord is pleased with you and with your obedience. Know that like Job, you will be vindicated, finally. And like Job, you will be rewarded and restored fully. That's our second and last point, restoration fully. We all love happy endings. I mean, it's, it's the only reason some of us watch movies or read novels that have super predictable, positive conclusions. Like, the first five minutes of the movie, you know where it's going, right? right? But, but it's like, a, you know, it scratches an itch for you, right? Like, I, I know where it's going. It's super cheesy, but I want that, you know? The boy finally gets the girl. Uh, the lost child is reunited with her family. And the group of passengers trapped on an island are rescued. The prisoner of war breaks free. The sufferer beats the diagnosis and enjoys a long life with loved ones. There's something about happy endings that warms our hearts, even if they feel very fairytale-ish. We keep reading and we keep watching because real life is so hard. So hard that we feel like we need to escape into some fictional world where everything turns out okay. But the book of Job shows us that the happy endings aren't just for fairy tales or Hallmark movies. The, the entire Bible shows us that happy endings aren't just for fairy tales or Hallmark movies. God's people in the end will have full restoration of all that was lost and then some. And will experience pure joy and never ending delight and perfect peace. Look with me at verse 10. We read, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Notice that Job's forgiveness of his friends his willing, is, is, is hinged on his willingness to pray for them. Right? Job uh, is blessed by God after Job's willing heart to forgive and pray for his friends. This is not some kind of works-based reward system. Do something for God and God will do something better for you. No, what we see here is God's grace magnified. I mean, from his encounter with God in chapters 38 to the beginning of chapter 42, we learn that, that Job is content having simply heard from the Lord. Even with all the loss, God's presence is enough for him. But God wants to give more. I mean, he means to give more than anything we can ask or think or desire. So having passed the final test, demonstrating his deep commitment to God and his desire to do his will, God lavishes Job with riches and kindness. He doubles what he had before. He doubles the honor of the one who honors him. And look at the first thing that's noted as part of God's rich blessing. Fellowship. Comfort from family. Later we'll get to the stuff. Verse 12 talks about all the animals and the subsequent wealth that they bring. But I think we see something here of the greatest need people have. It's not possessions or wealth or status, it's relationships. Verse 11 says, Then came to Job all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, 
and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. What Job needed so deeply that his three friends failed to provide was comfort, was genuine and encouraging fellowship. Well, now the Lord brings that to Job through his brothers and sisters. You might ask, well, what have been the whole time? Why are they just showing up when everything is restored for Job? They just like family. Come around when you got a little money. When they need something, otherwise you'll hear from them. Well, they were kept away as part of God's testing. As part of the deep trial he put Job through. I mean, yes, Satan was the one who intended to destroy Job and to prove that his, his faith wasn't genuine. But this verse and so many others in this book tell us that the Lord brought all this evil or disaster in Job's life. Not directly. God is the author of no evil. He does no evil. But he granted Satan permission to afflict his servant. And part of that affliction, ultimately from God's hand, part of the suffering was solitude. Job said back in chapter 19, verse 13, that he, God, has put my brothers away from me. But here, God's hand is toward, turned towards Job in favor. And he brings family back to him. And they come around, not like many of our family members might sometimes come around, to get something from Job, but to give something to Job. They gave him, the text tells us, sympathy and comfort. But why Job need to be comforted now? I mean, everything is good now. He's got God. He's got stuff, double stuff. What's there to be sad about? Well, I think it shows us what we all know to be true. That even if things are restored... They never really replace what's been lost. I mean, how can you replace children? You think about their deaths daily. Some of you know that pain through miscarriage or through adult children who've passed away. The magnitude of the hurt you feel might lessen some over time, but it doesn't fully vanish. And neither does the painful memory of months in agony above, over trials. I mean, the physical and mental anguish that Job has been through all this time. You, you see, this book is real. And it helps us to deal with real life. It doesn't present a picture that you easily and quickly get over tragedy. That the gifts cover grief. No, you still need people to comfort you and to be with you. And praise God that all that we need, God provides. He gives Job brothers and sisters around him to be with him, to eat with him, to fellowship with him, to show him sympathy and comfort him. And he's given us brothers and sisters to be around us, to be with us, to eat with us, to fellowship with us, and to show sympathy and to comfort us. Friends, that's what a local church is, a new family. 
And many of us have suffered deep losses, not just as part and parcel of what it means to live in a fallen world, but because we are believers, because we are Christians. Family members have rejected us or ostracized us and distanced us. But praise God that he provides a new family, a deep bond with spiritual brothers and sisters to walk with each other in every single area and instance of life. So let's be what God has called us to be, a family. Saints, let me encourage you to continue to, to comfort and encourage one another. You may not have a lot of money. You may not have a lot of material things that you can give others, but you know what we can all give one another and what's more valuable than the most precious gold? Presence. We can all be present in one another's lives. I mean, consider that you and I are part of God's rich, extravagant gift, extravagant gift of grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? God has put you in this local church to be the grace gift, to be present in someone else's suffering, to provide what they most need, God's comfort through you. We go on to read in verse 12 that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Chapter 1 told us that he lost all these animals and all the riches that they, they, they provided by their value. Now God gives Job double the amount of animals he had at first. Verse 13 tells us he also gave Job more children. Ten kids, seven sons, and three daughters. But that's what Job had before. That's how many children died in chapter 1. Ten. If God were going to give Job double, wouldn't he give Job 20 children now? Well, it could very well be that all Job's children who died knew the Lord just as their father did. And God counts those dead, not as demolished or annihilated or vanished, but as alive and present with him. Ten children on earth and ten children in heaven. We don't know for sure, but saints, those who die in the Lord are never truly dead. They still live. That, that God gave Job ten children hints at God giving Job renewed and intimate relationship and fellowship with his wife. You see, the gift of children comes from God through the gift of sex, which is reserved for the gift of marriage. I know that might sound elementary, but in a time where cultural preferences trump biblical patterns and mandates, we need to state the obvious. Job was a married man, and from all accounts was only married to one woman as the Bible commands. But that one woman, as we saw earlier in this book, spoke foolishly, harshly with Job. She came to despise him in his suffering, preferring that he would curse God and die. Later in chapter 19, Job said, my breath is strange to my wife. I've become a stench to the mother of my children. But Job didn't cut her off. And now that Job is up, he don't go find him a new woman to start a new life. <laughs> now he stays with the wife of his youth. 
even after all the harsh words, even after all the hurt feelings, even after all the deep loss that they've gone through, their relationship is restored, their intimacy is restored, and they have more children together. Saints, God can restore what seems irreversibly ruined. God can restore your marriage. Some of you need to hear that this morning. God can absolutely restore your marriage. Your spouse today might be a stench in your nostrils. They might disgust you as Job disgusted his wife, but God can transform disgusting into delightful. God can transform 10 disgusting years into 40 delightful years. The seven years of empty can be replaced by many years of plenty. Have hope. This God who lives in this book still lives today and reigns. Trust and hope in him. Of the 10 children God granted Job and his wife, we learn more specifically about the three daughters. We we learn their names in verse 14, and we learn how they exceeded all the women in the land in beauty in verse 15. And that Job gave them an inheritance among their brothers, which is abnormal. In places like Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, show that, that the inheritance generally goes to the male heirs, to the sons. It's only after all the sons have died, there's no other sons to get the inheritance, that the, that the daughters get an inheritance. But here we read that while all the sons are still alive, Job gave his daughters an inheritance as well. It's perhaps a sign of how incredibly prosperous he was now. He had enough to give everybody. But more, I think it shows how incredibly gracious and generous he was. He wanted to give something to everybody. He valued his daughters just as he valued his sons, and he provided for them all. Verses 16 and 17 close the book, summarizing the happy life that Job endured for the rest of his life. He lived a long time, 140 years, and saw many generations follow him, sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, four generations, including Job. And he died an old man and full of days. What a happy ending. But is it too good to be true? And if it is true, is it only true for Job? Is there any guarantee for you and I that God will richly bless us with a happy ending? Absolutely. God has promised rich blessings to every believer in Jesus Christ. He has promised to lavish on us the riches of his grace and kindness innumerably. innumerably. Right? Forever and ever and ever. As, as, as we read earlier from Matthew chapter 19, those of us who've left or lost houses and lands, friends and family for the sake of our commitment to Christ will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life in the presence of God forever where we will forever behold the beauty of the Lord, more beautiful than all Job's most beautiful daughters, where we will be surrounded with brothers and sisters uncountable from every age in history, 
from every tribe and tongue and nation surrounding the throne of King Jesus and singing his praise together with all those who trusted in him. But this happy ending comes at the end. And many of us want chapter 42 after chapter one or after chapter two, after the first signs of hardship, after the first season of suffering. We want the happy ending now. And if we don't see it, if we don't experience it, we are tempted to lose hope, to think that things will always be the way they are now. We're tempted to turn our backs on God and try to engineer our own happy ending. Well, saints, that is not God's plan. God's plan is for his people to patiently endure suffering while we trust upon him to accomplish his purposes. It's suffering and then restoration. It's humiliation and then exaltation. It's sorrow and then joy. It's, it's the path of Job. It's the path of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him that was coming, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now, because he endured, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God will put us through suffering, intense suffering even. He may not let us know all the reasons for it or when it will end, but we can know that it is not to destroy us, but rather to deepen our faith and our trust in him. We know that he is leading us somewhere. After grief, there's glory. After hardship and hurt and what may seem like hell on earth, there's eternal happiness with and in him. As believers, we absolutely will experience much suffering and many sorrows, but we can absolutely trust that in the end, God will make all things right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your promises to us. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to hope in you, even in the midst of hard circumstances. Help us to patiently endure like your servant Job, to patiently endure like your son Jesus, so that with him we might rejoice in your presence forever. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.